Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. From fervent socialists to devout Christians, many have sought to live by a strict moral code. Yet from the gulags to the Inquisition, it has often been those with the strictest codes who have perpetrated the greatest crimes. Shall we see such terrible outcomes as a sign of the frailty of humans rather than a threat to the moral principles themselves? Or is it possible that seeking to rigorously and universally enforce any moral code blinds the adherent to the real life consequences? Joining us to debate the hypocrisy of the good, we have Professor of International Relations David Chandler, award-winning journalist Ekitim Alkuran, and esteemed philosopher Julian Bajini. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit ii.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers. I'll now hand you over to our host for this debate, Miriam Francois. Is it possible that seeking to rigorously and universally enforce any moral code blinds the adherent to the real life consequences? Should we conclude that while a framework of good action is valuable, an attempt to subsume all human behavior within a strict code of rules is not only impossible, but dangerous? Well, to help me answer those questions, we have a fantastic panel of speakers. I'm very uh, delighted to welcome uh, our first of our three speakers, Ejay Temelkuran, who is an award-winning Turkish journalist, author, and previous television presenter. She's published 12 books, including How to Lose a Country, and her upcoming book, 10 Choices for a Better Now. I'm also joined by David Chandler. David is a professor of international relations at the University of Westminster and the founding editor of the Journal of Intervention and State Building. With 20 books published, David is a major authority in his field, known for his analysis of international policy, including humanitarian intervention. And last but not least, I'm joined by Julian Bagini. Julian is the author of numerous best-selling books on philosophy and co-founder of The Philosopher's Magazine. His books include The Ego Trick, How the World Thinks, and most recently, The Godless Gospel. He's currently academic director of the Royal Institute of Philosophy. Welcome to you all. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm going to kick off, if I may, this first question. Does a strict morality necessarily lead to dangerous hypocrisy? Ajay, do you want to kick us off with that one? Sure, sure. Good morning to everyone. Well, the simple answer is yes, but the hypocrisy is not in the word good, yet in the word of strictness. It is the power uh, and therefore the ability to impose is what corrupts the good and eventually all that is good. 
Due to the political sins of autocratic regimes in near history, many today tend to think that the search for the good and eventually all morality is hypocritical. And that's a dangerous thing, I would say. There is also the old fact that the human, with his unbearable practicality, can utilize the most intricately woven high moral values and turn them into tools of oppression. The vulgarity of the masses has the ability to degrade a moral value to a daily practice, no matter how flawlessly constructed it is in theory. It is always a very small minority who keep the intrinsic meaning of the moral value. They keep it for the future generations, despite the corrupting practicality of the masses. The oppressive morality of the capitalist system is still rarely discussed. We always talk about gulags or Chinese cultural revolution. And the hypocrisy of the good in this system still does not get the theoretical beating that it deserves. What is the good in today's dominant culture of capitalism is rarely a popular topic. Therefore, we easily dismiss the fact that the radical evil that is very present in today's global politics is in fact arising from the innate hypocrisy of the good in the capitalist morality. I had to think about the hypocritical good in capitalist morality in order to understand the global rise of the new authoritarianism. My initial focus was the shamelessness, in fact. Uh, while writing How to Lose a Country, I noticed that all the right-wing populist regimes, regardless of the country, render shamelessness as a political tool, and eventually shamelessness become a cultural identity. Well, our dominant culture uh, tends to associate shame with bodily desire, yet the utilized shamelessness in today's politics derives from the damaging act on human dignity. Therefore, in order to oppose this and mass moral crime on human dignity, we have to define the good and do it through what is at stake namely human dignity. I'm not sure if we can invent a good that is immune to corruption, yet humankind's determination to search for the good is certainly a moral value, and I think it is incorruptible. And we cannot describe that kind of good hypocritical. Thank you, Miriam. Thank you, Ajay, for that really strong opener. Lots of food for thought there. Um, Julian, could I pick that up with you? Does a strict morality necessarily lead to a dangerous hypocrisy? Three minutes. Okay, well, first of all, Ajay, well, I agree with a lot of what Ajay said, actually, although we might want to go back to a specific role of, of capitalism in this, because I'm a bit concerned that we tend to lump a lot of things together under that label. But look, I mean, I think, so I'm, I'm basically agreeing, but I think to sort of try and understand this properly, I think we need to make a few distinctions. That's our, our, our favourite game as philosophers. And one thing around this about strictness, when you mean a strict morality, I think we've got to distinguish a strict or you might say a rigid morality over a demanding one. I think some of the most admirable moralities that we've had in our world are, are very demanding. For example, I'm not a Christian myself, but the, the kind of Jesus implores people to be the, be the perfect. We can't be perfect, but he says you should try to be perfect. That's really, really demanding. That's not the same as being strict or rigid. So I think it's very important to sort of recognize the fact that if we're kind of sort of pointing the finger at rigid morality, uh, it doesn't mean that we should favor instead a kind of a, a lax morality, a kind of anything goes, do what you like. There's another distinction too, I think. I think this is perhaps the key one. I think Edge really pointed to this. 
it's it's the dogmatism really it's not the strictness tends to go together with dogmatism but it's not necessarily exactly the same thing and it's the idea that and, and by dogmatism that it's it's not necessarily the same thing as a conviction so it, but it's that belief that not only is this right, but this must be imposed on everybody. Everybody must follow. So again, you can compare that to another form of strictness. If you take um, Buddhist monasteries, right? I mean, there have been corruption in Buddhist monasteries too. So I don't want to say that they're, they're, they're the angels, the highest angels. But in a lot of like Buddhist monasteries, life is very, very strict. They live according to very, very strict rules about the times they wake up, etc., etc. But the ethos in the best versions of these monasteries is not that this is something we must go and impose on everybody else. It's something we choose to do ourselves. We live by this code. And that doesn't lead to necessarily at all to hypocrisy and so forth. I think the final point just to end on, which perhaps ties them up, is, you know, moral conviction has been extremely powerful, positive change for good. People standing up to uh, Recep Erdogan in, in, in Turkey are, are doing so from a very strong moral conviction. And that's really important. And I think this is the, the danger of like, thinking that the, we should retreat instead to some kind of moral laxity. But I think the, the thing that makes a difference is, is whether it's a, a moral conviction, is whether it has what we might call this epistemic conviction. In other words, it's not just that I really believe in this value, it's right, but I believe it has a status of a kind of a absolute certainty, a piece of knowledge which cannot be challenged. That, that is fantastic. Thank you, Julian, as well, for not just those brilliant points, but, but for keeping to time. David, I'm going to put it to you now. Does a strict morality necessarily lead to a dangerous hypocrisy? We've got lots, lots of great points already on this. I guess I want to make two points around this and the first is some is along the lines of a chase and maybe the second speaks to julian's slightly and the question is about is what is it about this strict morality that may or may not necessarily lead to hypocrisy and i want to sort of come from a slightly different angle that i think we have to start from the world that we live in what is it about the world that we live in that that means that maybe or maybe not strict morality leads to hypocrisy and I just want to firstly follow up a bit on AJ's point. The first thing about the world we live in is power relations, hierarchies. In that sort of a world, any type of strict morality that can be imposed is doubtlessly going to lead to problems because there's less accountability, problems of representation, uh, problems of exclusion. And we all know that, you know, power corrupts and all the rest of it, whether it's like literally corrupting or just the inability to see because the way that we think about the world is normally shaped sociologically, politically, economically around our interests. And in a world of competing interests, then the more morality, the more, um, as Julian says, the more that can be imposed, the more potentially dangerous it is. That's not really sort of rocket science to say that as long as we live in that sort of world, any sort of strict morality is potentially dangerous and hypocritical. But more importantly, I'd like to pick up on Julian's second point about the epistemic conviction, the knowledge conviction. And there's something else about the world, even beyond the problem of power relations, and that is it's a world of differences. We do not live in a flat, universal world where everything equals the same thing, everything causes things in a sort of a linear and reductionist way. In a world where different policies, different ideas, they might work in one time and place, but unlikely to work in another time and place. You have a wonderful moral policy around health, around the environment, around cures, around industry, manufacture, whatever it is, you realize later on, different time and place, or even it may well be contested in the same time and place, 
But yeah, that doesn't actually work. If you think about the climate crisis that we're in at the moment, those are all unintended consequences. Those are all products of things that people weren't thinking about at the time because the world doesn't keep on going in exactly the same way. And so there's, there's broader issues to think about moral codes. How could they possibly be valuable across time and space and difference? Thank you so much for that, David. Thank you to all of our panelists so far. So now we're going to kick off with our first theme um, of the debate. Uh, and that really touches, I think, on, on something all of our speakers have, have alluded to in some way. Um, and that's some form of universalism, I guess. So some moral facts may seem indisputably true. It's hard to imagine a situation where, for example, ethnic cleansing would be the ethical thing to do. Yet for most of us, our exact moral beliefs are likely entirely unique. So the first question, which I'd like to put to Jay Julian to kick us off, is, is there one true morality? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a really tricky question to answer in, in, a, in a way that's not going to be potentially misleading. I think, I mean, as, and it depends on how I understand it. I and mean, as David's already pointed out, it's certainly not in the sense that you can have just one set of moral codes which are going to apply equally in all times. That's not because of, by the way, a kind of like a lazy relativism that, you know, what's right for you may not be right for me. It's simply, as he said, circumstances change. So something like burning fossil fuels, for example, is morally unobjectionable. In fact, in fact it might be more morally compulsory in a world that was facing catastrophic global cooling. Um, it becomes wrong in a situation where there's catastrophic global warming. So you, there's not that kind of universality. And I also think, I mean, you use the phrase moral facts just in, in there. I, I don't think morality is like that. I don't think there are any moral facts as such, actually. I think that the, the va values aren't facts in the same kind of way. But I, I think we, we do want to overstate this because I think there are many things which are, uh, uh, there is a sufficient pretty much universal agreement on them, like you, you mentioned ethnic cleansing, for example. Um, so we, we don't want to sort of push this point too much because it leaves people with the impression that, as I say, you can never draw a line, you can never say this is wrong. And, and no one really seriously means that, you know, people who are wanting to be very, very open and inclusive about moral diversity will, will have their things that they get very, very indignant about. So I, we have to be just careful how we understand this. So we mean that when we say there's no universal morality, we, what we mean is there's no moral laws set in stone, timeless, universal, applying all times. But that, that shouldn't stop us from saying there are certain things which, as a matter of fact, we can say, no, this, this must not stand and, and, and we don't want this in our world. What about something like the Ten Commandments, which obviously, you know, rooted in the Judeo-Christian tradition? It, these are principles that are kind, you know, regarded as having, at least for their, those who believe in them, a kind of universal, eternal moral significance, but seem to also have the, the malleability to, to be adaptable to different times and places. I mean, is that an example? Or? Well, I mean, I, th I think, you know, the, the, the kind of principles you can come up with, I mean, in order to have that flexibility, they have to, you know, <laughs> you get this trade-off. The more specific they are, the less credible they are, the more valuable they are the more plausible they are but then what do they really mean you know I mean honor thy mother and father I don't know I think sometimes you should humor your mother and father rather than honor them uh, you know and sometimes you don't honor them at all if they're, they're awful despots or horrible horrible people even the most general rules like you know do unto others as you would be done by I mean it, it requires so much caveating and qualification to make it genuinely universal I mean I actually think that the, the things which have the greatest credibility that look like genuinely perhaps universal laws, I think even those 
I think what actually happens is that I'd, I'd be quite radically particularist about ethics in the sense that, in a way, I'd say there are no universal laws or t- rules at all. But there are certain types of situation where the patterns recur again and again and again. We can say pretty confidently, yeah, universal law, no torture, for example. But it's not technically true that that's a universal law. It just means that for all practical purposes, we can act as, as though it is. So I'm very comfortable with the idea that, that there are no universal laws as such. And, and it, it, the most plausible ones are just very, very good rules of thumb, which tend to work most of the time. They're still not, they still don't have the status of those absolute inviolable principles. Uh, AJ, can I bring you in now? Um, is it is it you know all uh, some kind of relativistic approach to values that are good for a particular time and place, or is there still a kind of universal moral code that we can look at or consider that that could function across time and space? And I, I guess I particularly ask this to you as a a Turkish lady from a Muslim majority country. Many people would regard you know the Quran as being a sort an eternal source of moral guidance. So is, there, is it not possible to find one true form of morality or does it have to, do we have to come back to the specifics and the relativism? Oh, there are so many things to talk about, like, you know, about the things you said. Uh, yes, I've hit you with a load, haven't I? <laughs> <laughs> is religion the main source of morality or can we, you know, build up a secular morality, which is my main question in the coming book. So I've been thinking about that. But I'll pick up from where Julian left about the question lazy relativism. Although Julian thinks that I am hard on capitalism, too hard on ca- capitalism, I do think that this lazy relativism has become our dominant culture and dominant understanding of the world thanks to capitalist morality. And I'm sure David would you know, talk about that uh, better than me because capitalism does not like antagonism unless you want to uh, you know, touch the power relations. It is an open buffet of truths and now facts as well, and therefore open buffet of moral values. That's why we, since last 20 years, 30 years, uh, we tend to start start our conversations with, I believe, I feel like, because we don't want to antagonize, we don't want the confrontation because we are living in the natural order. This is what is imposed on us. This is the oppressiveness of capitalist morality. And it is so everywhere, it is so established itself as a rule that we percept, our perception of it is this is the normal human condition. This is the natural human condition. I do, however, agree with Julian in the sense of looking for the universal values, looking for the universal morality, is, um, I think, determination innate in humankind, which we shouldn't be compromising for the sake of this lazy relativism, which is uh, done for so many times since last years. I I approach this moral question, obviously, from uh, politics, global politics, and rise of right-wing populism, and the radical evil, which is not coming in uniforms like it did in Second World War, but now in hoodies or in, you know, funny uh, hair, (laughs) like in Britain or in the United States. How are we going to deal with this political situation on moral level? We have to find a quite strong uh, word or a value rather 
to build our politics upon, to oppose the radical evil that is now present through right-wing populism and authoritarian inclinations. So what I think is, yes, there is a, uh, there must be a universal moral value set, and we can uh, build this value set on human dignity. And even we are, uh, whether we are religious or not, uh, whether we believe that religion is the source of morality or not, we have to uh, establish this moral values on human love for a simple reason, because we have, we have to love humans because we are a human. Unloving yourself would negate the self. Therefore, I have to love myself to be and I, I have to love others to be together. I think human dignity and love are the, you know, stones that we are going to build upon the new universal morality. And there must be a universal morality. And the search for it is, I think, inexhaustible. Thank you, David. If I may bring you in to respond to the idea that love and dignity could provide the basis for universal morality or the, the idea that there are no moral facts at all. Where do you stand on this one, David? I'm not sure. I think we're talking about it because it's a, a tricky problem. And I think in the fairly recent past, we could have done this like human values, human dignity. Um, the human can sort of rescue us from the immorality, the hypocrisy of power and inequality and violence and conflict. It's just that like the last maybe 10, 15 years, the human is like being questioned, these sort of universalist understandings of humans with human futures, and if only we could all just be human together. And I think the one term that comes up when we discuss things like that is the Anthropocene, the understanding that humans aren't just good in many different ways of understanding, of course, like human-induced climate change, but the, the idea that there's just a sort of easy moralizing humans together, humans first, begins to be problematized. And at the same time, maybe any idea of moral absolutes and moral certainties. If you think about the history of modernity, the history of progress, the history of ethics, development, the development of science, democracy, education, if it's all leading to the destruction of the world and a blindness of the unintended consequences of modernity and all that progress and stuff, you can easily see how especially for younger generations, that there is a question of how do we attain moral certainty, the frameworks and the guidelines that we need. And, you know, it's a real issue. And I think it's a little bit late, not lazy necessarily, but I don't think the human is, is capable of resolving moral questions in the way that it was, uh, it was until fairly recently. Why not? Because as I've said, that um, there's a certain, a greater amount of skepticism and in fact, a, a sort of an anti-humanism that um, maybe many of our problems are due to this sort of moralized understanding that humans were great and that we could achieve things and, and do things. So it's led to a certain hubris, a certain view that we can solve our things, that we should be expected to achieve things and have this history of continual progress and acquisition, consumptionism, et cetera. So I'm, I'm just sort of arguing that like, in the world of left and right and modernist politics, you could understand how that's a very humanist and modernist set of aspirations, a struggle over a future. The contemporary moment of climate change, which is seen to be caused by humanity itself, 
creates a question about the human as the universal ethical signifier of progress. Mm. Uh, and therefore, presumably, the source of a morality that would be of value to all things on this planet, not just our own benefit. Would that be a fair deduction from your statement? Yeah, so the human couldn't be the measure of, as you say, of ethics and of values and of rightness and of goodness. If that was the case, then in attempting to do that, we can just see a history of failure and, and particularly of blindness of those consequences that I'm just saying that raises a fundamental issue about our traditional classical discussions of morality. So um, we're going to move on to the next question, but just a quick summation there. So um, Julian, with the idea that there are no more facts, that values aren't facts, and um, that the more specific we get, the more malleable these become. Ejay, with the idea of a secular morality, there must be universal moral values, and this can be built on human dignity and love. And of course, your point there, the idea that we uh, as humans um, develop a, a form of morality that's ultimately self-serving, but is really detrimental, as we are now very aware, to uh, other species and, and the planet's balance more broadly. I'd like to take us on now to the second theme, which is why are so many heinous crimes committed in the name of good from the Salem witch trials, colonialism, the attack on the Twin Towers, all acts of evil committed out of a sense of moral duty. So I'm not so sure about the, the relationship. Sometimes conflicts force heinous crimes that people are forced to um, moralize and exaggerate the what's at stake in it and, you know, the struggle of life and death and good and bad. And so often the sort of violence and the keenness of the consequences go along with upping the stakes of the moralizing of good and bad. Same today in terms of the ways that behavior is monitored and understood and, and regulated. A whole discussion has changed and a climate of, and a way of thinking has changed. And in fact, a morality that's, that's shaping our everyday practices and should we go to the shops and, you know, everything becomes recalibrated. So I'm sort of thinking that there's often a relationship between the amount of bloodshed and violence and the amount of ethical polarization that's, that's there. So that just would be my first point about it. The second point I'd make is that the people who decide what's good and what's bad normally have the capacities and the power and the weaponry to, you know, to constitute worlds of violence. Um, as AJ was saying at the, at the start of our discussion today, that it's very difficult to discuss the problems of morality without thinking about power relations and hierarchies and the violences that sort of constitute them and reproduce them. Um, Julian, can I maybe bring you in here? Uh, just a reminder, why are so many heinous crimes committed in the name of good? Um, I'm interested maybe in you picking up on the point that David just made of the relationship between violence and moral polarisation. Yeah, no, I think I, I won't pick up on that because I think he just made the point very well. And I think it's, uh, the, yeah, the, the cause and effect here can be quite complicated. I'd, I'd agree, yes. So what he's saying yeah. is that sometimes actually okay. the, mode, yeah. the moral polarisation, the sort of like, the retreats to certainty, as it were, is a response to situations, not, not the, the cause of them. And I think there's mm. a lot to be said for that. Okay. I think there are certain types throughout history of examples where it is indeed something about the understanding of the good which has been responsible. And I think here, 
I mean, in broad terms, you know, the question was asking in the name of the good. Now, what is the good? The good is an, is an abstract noun, right? And in a way, I think this is, this is the problem. I mean, what is morality? What is ethics really? Now, the sort of humanistic understanding I have, which I don't think is a particularly Western one, by the way, I think it's kind of Confucian as well, really, which is that, you know, what we're really trying to serve is, is human flourishing. And flourishing, as we learned, flourishing of other species too, we expand our circle. The concern is with other people. And so when Ejay talks about, you know, love and, and, and dignity, these, these are kind of words which keep our morality rooted in, in, in the concrete, in the world. Now, I, I don't think it's a coincidence that when you have a vision of morality, where the good becomes something else. It becomes either an abstract ideal or it becomes something to do with God or supernatural realm. You're divorcing. You're divorcing the good from these earthly concerns. And that is what opens up the gap. It means you can sometimes, you, you know, the, the possibility of doing something truly awful in the name of the good occurs because the good, good has been separated from what is the, the most important thing, uh, human beings in the here and now. And I think that is a, a real danger. And of course, it does also require what we talked about earlier, degrees of you know, absolute certainty and conviction as well. And these three things together can be very, very toxic. You know, you saw it in Soviet Union, for example. You know, the good, the good of the good of humanity requires just basically uh, destroying the lives of millions in the here and now. They're just a means to an end. Thank you, uh, Ajay. Can I bring you in now? Um, <laughs> heinous crimes caused by a lack of morality rather than the presence of it. Um, there's nothing much to say ex uh, after Julian and David because. We all know that the crimes are committed and the good, the you know, the good that it will serve to, so-called serve to, is fabricated afterwards most of the time. And those crimes are about power relations, it's about real politics, it's about human here and now, it's about the mundane reality, it's not about the abstract good. The abstract good is tailored after the crime is committed or because the crime will be committed. I want to pick up something from what Julian, uh, David said. Yes, this anti-humanism, this, uh, and I would call it total loss of faith in humankind. We are experiencing such a problem. And this is the, either the last act uh, of the moral process that we have been through since decades, or it is the new opening line uh, for, uh, for to you know, bring about some universal values, once again, reinvent human once again. When I say love and dignity, it, it, is, it can be easily misleading in terms of love is very much in the realm of uh, religious narrative and dignity is, you know, can be, well, these two words basically can be taken from any self-help book nowadays. But, and the reason for that is, I think, we lost our faith in humankind. It was very interesting during the pandemic uh, in Istanbul, on Twitter uh, and social media was full of uh, pictures from the Bosphorus and the dolphins were in Bosphorus. Uh, and then we saw all those pictures and footage from all around the world where the animals uh, sort of invaded this you know, human space. And people were in awe of these footages. And they were as if telling their self-hatred by saying that, look how the world looks beautiful without us. So pandemic actually presented us with a clear picture of what would, uh, you know, a preview of the world. 
and how it will look without the human. And unfortunately, humans fell in love with this, you know, uh, this image, uh, which I think is a symptom of our self-hatred, which is very righteous, I would say, after all the, you know, reading the history, you would say that, well, maybe we don't deserve to exist anyway. However, uh, as long as there are aliens coming or we are finding them, we are alone in this universe for the time being, and we have only each other. So we actually do not have any choice other than believing in ourselves and loving our, the humankind, because from there on, you can talk about morality. From there on, you can build a better world, a better politics, and reconstruct the human. So that is why, actually, I am talking about love and dignity. Uh, and I'm quite aware that it sounds too humanistic, or not even humanistic, too, it sounds shallow. And one cannot uh, help but smirk when, you know, when one hears these words. But I do think that we need, we urgently need to bring these words in the realm of politics and in, in the realm of secular morality. And I think Julian would agree with me because he wrote these godless gospels. It is uh, from an urgent need, not uh, from a theoretical deduction that I make, this love and dignity part. And heinous crimes is easy. I mean, like it's the unbearable vulgarity of humankind. They, 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 they do it and then there's always a moral good to support their crimes. I thought it was really just the idea of saying that these words sounded, I can't remember the words used, but like, you know, thin or something like this. I think that's partly the result of just a culture in which we've you know, worshipped abstract nouns, you know. If, if, if you think that the good is to do with these big abstract nouns, justice, the right, whatever, then you talk about love and dignity and things which are more to do with our everyday interactions. And they're not as grand sounding, but that, I think that just shows the mistake in which morality has gone, not that these concepts are any uh, less important. Hmm. Um, and David, I was wondering if you had any thoughts on the idea that, that these sort of principles of love and dignity can overcome the sort of self-interest um, in humans that has led us to, to where we are now, which is uh, a pretty uh, dire uh, impact on the world around us and on one another, actually, in many ways. So I think there's a few issues. Um, we live in a, in a moment, in a time, I think, of sort of pessimism and scepticism, which is why we look outside the window and it's raining and we think, oh, humans are terrible, we've caused that. Or it's sunny and like humans are terrible, we caused that. And the whole world seems to be telling us that, um, that we're like really bad and we shouldn't be striving for things. And, you know, so coronavirus doesn't help, but it's, it's you know, it's, it's there anyway. And in that sort of time, the, the search for moral certainties, you know, has its, it's always problematic. It's always going to be there. I think we need to have frameworks to live our lives to provide meaning because we're humans. Humans are meaning making, meaning needing creatures. And the difficult thing is when we're trying to create meaning in circumstances where it seems very difficult to find frameworks of meaning which are empowering and enabling. And um, this is one of those sorts of times. And um, we have to, we're, we're like reflective, we're aware that things are always going to be problematic. A framework of meaning isn't a solution, but it's like it's going to have to be there in some level. 
So we, we can talk about the importance of love, di dignity, but on, on a smaller basis, on a personal basis, where we're, we're thinking much more about our personal relationships and things. That's, that's sort of fine. But on other levels, it evades the broader, greater historical vacuum, which lies beyond that. And you might want to argue as well that that's probably not enough. But um, for everyone to be fragmented and to sort of be therapeutically happy with their reflections upon what they're shopping and what they're doing. And the coronavirus brings that on as well. Every little thing becomes micro-moralized in a, in a good thing or a bad thing. And then we forget the bigger picture. And the only, you know, the key thing about um, strict moralities is that they are very much big picture. And, you know, we lose that and we don't seem to have any other framework of replacing that. And I, I think that's a major problem, but I don't sort of have any sort of solution for that. But I think recognizing the problem is at least the beginning. That's it. Well, that leads us nicely into our third and final section, which is a forward looking question. So um, as religious practice declines globally, some will argue that this will lead us into a mess of moral relativism, which um, where nothing is right and nothing is wrong. So my final question for the panel is, will we see more or less moral certainty in the future? Ajay, may I kick off with you on that one? You know, the problematic word here is future, because it always, you know, whenever someone says tomorrow or future, I, I, I'm reminded of that Angela Poulos movie, Eternity in a Day. A guy asks in the movie, what is tomorrow? And the narrator answers, protagonist answers, it's a day, eternity and a day. So future is now, actually. Uh, we are living in the future. We are so living in the future that we are already mourning for the world that we are going to lose soon. Uh, in that sense, in a very pessimistic sense, in fact, we are living in the future. So what uh, our certainties or uncertainties today will be lingering a long time uh, if you know there won't be an alien, alien invasion or not, or, or something like that. So no, there, we will be like this. And we have been more or less like this. Uh, there are those of us who want certainties, and there are those of us who can deal with life without certainties. And that proportion of, uh, you know, human population, I don't think it will change uh, dramatically. Can those two groups live together? Um, and I suppose the reason I'm partly asking that in, in, in terms of this idea of whether we need um, some kind of moral framework that, that is shared is I'm looking at countries that are increasingly polarized. I mean, here in the UK, as an example, the US, obviously, with the uh, latest election is a really great example of that. I mean, can we get away with not having a shared moral framework? Is it okay to have some people on one side who, like you say, some people may need it and some people just don't? Can they coexist and have a, a productive and healthy society in that balance? Well, those who are devoted to certainties, if they don't kill us, yes, we can. Uh, well, I'm coming, coming from a very polarized country. Everything, every little thing in daily life is politicized. It's an overly politicized country. Even the toilets are politicized. There's the Ala Turka and Ala Pranga, which is a normal toilet. And uh, it shows which, you know, morality, which uh, politics you're following. And people kill each other. Uh, because of that, because of these moral certainties. 
And when I speak of lack of love uh, in politics, I don't even mean uh, the lovelessness between the polars. I'm actually talking about within one polar, people do not uh, think about love enough, I think, but that's another topic. So uh, yes, the societies are disintegrating. Uh, we already seen the international organizations and national and national states and you know all other uh, institutions disintegrating lately and we, now we are due to the polarization in the phase of disintegration of society uh, people do not want to live in a society some of them so uh, yes it is about determination i think uh, to de to be determined to live together and unfortunately, this determination uh, does not fall upon those who have certainties, ironically. And um, David, can I bring you in uh, at this point? I mean, uh, just a reminder of the question, will we see more or less moral certainty in the future? What will they depend on? Good question. So um, I'm guessing that the um, certainties is the problem. And it seems to me that the sort of trend is the moral trend is to say that all certainties are problematic. And so I think you can have morality, and we've already sort of right, touched on it, really. You can have morality without certainty. And in fact, maybe morality is a war on certainties because certainties are the things that divide us. They separate us. They make us not sensitive. They make us not reflective. You can easily begin to think how you carve out a more humble and open ethical awareness not in a positive way, not um, in favor of something, not in shaping something in terms of a future in those linear ways, but in, in challenging certainties. And we see that all the time. Anyone that argues this is a certain thing, there's a separation between peace and war, between health and sickness, men and women alive and dead, human and non-human, you name a certainty, and I can give you a moral ethical argument for why that certainty is genocidal, ecocidal, uh, and terrible. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that it's only fairly recently that we've had this ability to construct a moral world against certainty rather than alongside with certainty. And as I said earlier, I think that fits in with our disillusionment of the human and the human modernist construction of a world of certainties in separate from the world of nature and arbitrarily world of chaos. And um, our inability to do that is creating quite a peculiar context in which we're having these discussions around ethics and morality and hypocrisy. Um, just to slightly push you on that one, just because I think, you know, I wonder, religions are obviously very different in their manifestations, but it seems very much at the core, I would argue, they advocate for the idea that you should want for others what you want for yourself. What would you say would be genocidal, for example, about that kind of a moral certainty that, you know, advocating for that kind of a moral certainty? Where's the danger in something like that? It's not what comes to mind. When most people think about moral certainties, it's normally against something else. Something else is like fundamentally wrong, fundamentally different, fundamentally other. Even the idea of a moral certainty of wanting for others what you want for yourself, um, the planet's not big enough. Sorry. You know what I mean? Um, even on that most basic level of wanting everyone to have what you have, that's that's definition of ecocidal and probably genocidal. Okay, thank you, David. Julian, uh, will we see more or less moral certainty in the future? Um, and are there any areas where we're starting to see a worrying rise of dogmatic moral thinking, would you say? 
if we just if we just take it we've agreed that you know dogmatism and, and absolute certainty are the enemies I, I still think there's a possibility of a positive increase in certain forms of moral conviction i think you can see this by separating morality and ethics people don't always sometimes people use the terms as though they're the same and there's not actually a totally agreed distinction between the two but Broadly speaking, I'd say that morality really concerns uh, what we kind of owe to each other and how we have to treat each other. Ethics is broader. Ethics is basically uh, how, how we live, how we flourish. It's more comprehensive. Now, I think the point is that traditionally, you know, ethics and morality have gone together. They've been part of the same thing. So Christianity, for example, both offers some, some moral rules and an, an ethical vision of how you should uh, live your life. And I think that in this sort of transition to a more pluralistic world, in a way, the, the, the uncoupling of morality and ethics kind of has to go further. So we have the pluralism is that there are many, many ways to live a good life. There are many things, many, too, too many ways of choosing. You can't impose them. But it makes it even more necessary to have a sort of moral conviction on some, some bottom lines about how we treat each other. And so I think that in a way, in order to accommodate all this kind of diversity of, moral, of ethical vision, we need to have clarity on these moral bottom lines. Never dogmatically, always up for revision, and also minimally, as, as few as possible. But without them, uh, you, you, we don't have any way of, of creating that shared basis upon which we can choose to follow our, our own flourishing, if you like. And that, that unified or um, shared vision is possible across the diverse perspectives. I, I suggest this because, you know, the, R- Rumi, uh, the Persian poet, would say, you know, religions, for example, are all the different rivers flowing into the same sea. I mean, is there a vision, at the, is, is there an ocean that we can aim for that we would all share? I, I think he's just far too optimistic to think you can literally bring <laughs> everyone upon this. You know, there are just some people who are too extreme. But I think more people can be brought uh, together on these things than we might think enough. And we don't need everyone. Thank you to all of our speakers, our panellists, for your contributions. Thank you to everyone in the audience for uh, joining us today. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit ii.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.